Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Today we've got our, our real honour, we've got uh, Jacob Field, uh, the author of History, the History of Europe in Bite-Sized Chunks, um, to talk to us about European history um, and a range of other fascinating uh, topic areas that go uh, along with that and Europe's uh, place in the modern world and its ancient and uh, medieval past. So without further ado, here is uh, Jacob Field uh, in conversation with me um, on the subject of Europe. So great. Um, well, I, I thought what we could do to begin with um, is, is talk a little bit about your um, your experiences uh, in, in in writing, researching, and the, the kind of the whole project of the book, and then talk um, a little bit um, about some of the the kind of the contemporary issues. Um, that we are facing at the moment in Europe and, and how those, what kind of resonances those have within the kind of the big story of European history. Sure. Um, perhaps, um, uh, Jacob, we, you could um, explain to, to the listeners a little bit about your, your background and your, your interest as well in, in European history. Okay, sure. So my background is I have... Um PhD in history from Newcastle University, and my academic study uh, is about the history of London, particularly the Great Fire of London, and also economic history and the Industrial Revolution, and why Britain industrialised first. Mm-hmm. And then I've also written a series of popular history books, um, starting with One Bloody Thing After Another, um, which is about the gruesome side of history, moving on to Is Capitalism Working?, which is about our modern economy, which plays in a lot of history of Europe. And then now this book, which is the history of Europe in bite-sized chunks. So this is really a general overview of European history, but only the most interesting, useful and significant bits of it. Yeah. And what role do you see? I mean, the, the, the titles that you've listed there the, that are um, popular histories... What role do you see popular history having um, in, in the kind of the, 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 the wider sort of uh, discourse between academia and, and charity of the general public, for want of a kind of a less elitist term? Yeah, I, I think it, it's really essential. Um, you know, you talk, there's words like public engagement or doing history in public. or um, but, but really, I think what it comes down to is 
that if you can make popular history with the same sort of academic rigor, so you know, using trustworthy sources and being critical about them, but also pitch it in a way which people uh, can find interesting and find uh, common ground with people in the past, as well as understanding how they're different, um, I think you can get a really nice synergy going because not everyone wants to slog through a 500-page manuscript about um, medieval illuminated texts, no. important as they are. Um, but a sort of skilled uh, historian who's writing for the general public can kind of synthesize some of the findings from the more specialist works mm-hmm. um, and bring that sort of rigor to it. So I think... Um, they sort of have a slightly different audience, the two sides of, of, of history. Yeah. Um, but I think overall they should be aiming at the same thing. That's my yeah. view of it. And, and coming back to um, the history of Europe in bite-sized chunks, mm-hmm. obviously the, uh, the changes that we're experiencing at the moment uh, make um, European history and uh, Britain's relationship to European history and to, to Europe um, c- crucial for uh, probably pretty much anybody um, to understand. How much do you feel at the moment, given uh, Brexit and the uh, the various crises that are emanating from that, that British people really understand European history? Um, would you think that the, that that understanding is is widespread or or fairly limited? No, well, I think it's very much patchy, and that goes back to how history is taught in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of set up, well, let's take our closest neighbour, um, France. You know, France crops up in 1066 is where the Normans come from, they invade, and then you don't hear much from France until World War One breaks out, really. Yeah. Um, and it's even rare for schools to cover the French Revolution, yes. um, which, I, which I find... You know, there's, there's a limited time for history in schools, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's a shame that a lot of people can uh, go through the whole education and, and not think about what a lot of historians, certainly political historians, would say is the most important thing to happen in history. Yeah. Um, and, and so certainly if there's one thing people can get from this book is that, wow, the French Revolution is really important and has a lot of knock-on effects that are even being felt today. Sure, sure. Was it not Juan Lai who said, you know, it's, it's too early to say? Um, yeah, uh, it's one of those one of those things, isn't it? Like um, kind of a Churchill quotes, greatly attributed, perhaps never actually said. But um, but but yeah, um, certainly I, I think that there's been. I mean, from my perspective as being a um, a GCSE and A level history teacher, uh, a huge shift since uh, 2010. Uh, just to pick a date out of the air, um, a huge shift towards kind of uh, a, a more introspective and more kind of um uh, a, a more kind of uh, british grand narrative of of history I- I- emerging um in in the teaching of history in schools um and kind of less of a focus on as you say things like the french revolution which are uh, of immense kind of general and, and global uh, importance and significance um the way in which that you've 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 structured the book, I think, is really interesting. Um, into these distinct time phases, I notice that you, you're given a, a lot of time to Europe's Middle Ages. Again, something that probably most people 
Um, our, our, you know, most people listening in in Britain would be aware of the Middle Ages in Britain. Perhaps if you, because this podcast is listened to quite a lot in America, mm-hmm. uh, I'm guessing probably the perception of um, the of what the Middle Ages were uh, in places like America and uh, around the world via the medium of popular culture is a very anglicised notion, mm. you know. Thing, uh, you know that, uh, that that film and TV depict from Robin Hood to to King Arthur, but of course it's uh, you know the, the the Middle Ages. It's not just this kind of in, international kind of uh, or sort of Europe phenomena of Christendom, but it's a sort of a state of mind, isn't it? The medieval mm. world, um, and it's a, I suppose it's a state of mind that we can look at um, and identify as being what whatever sort of what modernity was not. Um, uh, and so the importance of understanding the Middle Ages um, is huge and I think what happens uh, the way in which I've often tried to kind of translate it to my students is is the idea of kind of otherness that the the, the people of the Middle Ages were really distinctly different in in a whole range of ways to where the, the way in which modern people conceive of the world have you found sort of has, has that been something that you've seen in in some of the research that you've done? Yeah, I mean, in certain this idea of, of what Europe is and what Christendom is is a, is a really big point. I mean, if we take it to the early medieval period, um, when we still have just after the fall of Rome, but when the Byzantine Empire is still in place, you could argue that North Africa is a central part of Christendom, even though geographically it's not part of Europe, but culturally, economically. Uh, and politically, it's very much part of the sort of European world. Yeah. And then moving into the sort of high medieval period, you get this sense of, as you say, you've got the Christian world, which is becomes conceived of as Europe, and then you kind of have everyone else. Mm-hmm. And you get the boundaries of Europe being pushed out as you have things, for example, like the Northern Crusades. Yeah. Um, where you have this great march out towards the Baltic and Scandinavia, uh, and because of the last vestiges of pagan Europe gets pushed out by Christendom. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a sense, we have a sort of conception of Europe expands a little bit in the medieval period to what I think generally people would view of as Europe, kind of like the Western bit of the Eurasian landmass. Yeah. they uh, west, That Western bit, of that tiny tip of the Eurasian landmass, in, in which is bunched in this, this vast and complex civilization, which seems to have... Um, caused both kind of uh, benefits and havoc to the rest of the world. Is there a sense that one of the defining features of of Europe has been this sort of sense of siege from show, from either from the steppes of Russia or from um, the Islamic world um, that there, that um, Europe is hemmed in by uh, from periodically by existential threats? Has that had a, a role in, in shaping kind of European mentalities, do you think? I think certainly when we look at um, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, this idea of someone sort of coming over the steps forms a big part of, you know, folk memory and the national identity. You have things like even now in the Balkans, for example, um, the Battle of Kosovo, this great battle between the Principality of Serbia and the Ottomans is still something which is hugely significant. Mm. Um, and then you have, you know, the Ottoman Empire 
is is still very much felt. You know, only f- felt just over a century ago. Um, so this idea that you could have everything be swept away, I think mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it could happen in the West. Although we had the Vikings come and maraud from the north, um, but certainly if you look at the history of of, of Russia, you have. Uh, you know, various people, specifically the Mongols, who, um, you know, have um, authority over Russia for centuries mm-hmm. um, before the Mongol yoke is being thrown off. So I think that's a really interesting point in that periodically in European history you have this idea of it could all fall apart and when we're getting invaded from every corner. And that is, you know, a kind of a key anxiety at the moment with, uh, you know, um, things like kind of Russian hybrid warfare and um, the, the, the various um, destabilising effects that Vladimir Putin is having on the, the European Union. It, uh, talking about this, it puts me in mind of an experience I had when I was a, um, a newspaper reporter. Many years ago, I went to Kosovo uh, as a reporter um, with a British Army Regiment. And when I was out there, it was just after the uh, Kosovan uh, War had ended. And speaking to people on either side, Albanians and Serbs, there was it was quite common for the Serbs that I spoke to to refer to the Albanian Kosovars as Turks. Then that's what they called them. They said you know the Turks, um, which is obviously kind of code for Islamic, for for Muslim, for other, for non-European. And there was this sense in, and you find it um, in the parts of the Balkans, and I think there's a culture of it in Poland, all along kind of Europe's eastern periphery of, if it, you know, you lot in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Great Britain, you have it easy. We are holding the line here. We've been holding the line here for a very long time against, you know, the, the others um, who are, who would, you know, if it wasn't for us, would have swept all the way to the channel. Um, and in, in a way, there's there's a funny kind of, pan-Europeanism in that thought but there's also a funny kind of schism isn't there between East and West yeah I mean one thing when we were planning the book is I really wanted to have as much Eastern European and Central European history as possible and actually have some sort of balance rather than just concentrating on France, Spain and Germany Mm. Um, you know we wanted to put in things like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth Mm -hmm. um, you know, this, the Swedish Empire, which people don't really think about, um, the rise of Russia as a great power. Um, you, know, you know, we think of Russia as this huge thing, but it's only relatively recent in the broad sweep of European history yeah. that it has been this massive power. Uh, and then also I wanted to include a lot about Turkey and the Ottoman Empire, even though geographically only a little bit of Turkey is in Europe. It's had a huge impact on European history. Yeah. Um, not just Ottoman Empire, but earlier when it was one of the centres of the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think definitely, I think to have an appreciation of Europe, we, we can't just limit ourselves to Western Europe um, because that, that's just as limiting as you know just looking at the British Isles. I think we have to really look outward and to the whole continent. Well, that's it. And also from the 18th century onwards, it's hard to think of a European history without thinking of a, a global history. Um, it, things become uh, much more complex when you're telling the story of even one European country um, because of colonialism uh, and empire. Um, did you find that you, you got to the to about the, the kind of the early modern period and thought, "Blimey, I've got a whole new book to write." You know? <laughs> 
yeah, well, well you know, the, the happy and sad thing about this book is it, it's only 192 pages. There's only so much you can cover. So although colonialism and imperialism is really vital and it's a huge priority for European nations, I can only touch on it sort of almost thematically to talk about the broad sweep, sweep of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly if you look at rivalry between the great powers of Europe, really I think you could say the Seven Years' War is, is the first world war, the first global conflict. I have often... Global yeah. at stake. Yeah. Uh, and then World War One. you know, I think anyone who's studied World War at GCC will know that this battle for empire is, is a major factor mm-hmm. uh, in the World War One, and then World War Two. You know, you look at Mussolini and his desire to build up an empire. So, um, yeah, it's a huge trend in European history, and, and something which the book does touch on. Sure. Um, so there, there is that covered there. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, um, the, again, I often find one of the paradoxes of teaching World War One um, is that we call it a World War. Try to think about it in school terms as being a European war. Um, it's until very, very recently, the the history of World War One, at least at the school level, has been kind of whitened. Um, there is virtually in no history textbook that I've ever taught from mention of Sikh and Hindu and Muslim and African troops, Chinese uh, indentured workers on the Western Front. It's, 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 there's virtually nothing there. Um, and the reason why I think it's important when you're looking at the history of Europe is that those kind of colonial connections are uh, they are integral to the fighting of the war uh, by Britain and and France um, mm. to a greater much lesser extent Germany who used African troops in their uh, their their colonies um, but um, telling telling the story of this cataclysmic event in Europe. I, I, I find there's there's a kind of, lot of optimism at the moment in various histories I've read that start to look at um, the the kind of the, the the global picture of the war, looking at you know bits of the war fought in China and the Pacific and uh, mm. and things like that. Um, so so yes, there's there's a kind of like like a a, a paradox in the storytelling there uh, ever so slightly and. Uh, Almost, um, perhaps less so in the, the 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 telling of the story of the Second World War. Yeah, no, I, I think definitely a broad view of World War One as a global conflict is important. And even if we just look at it as a European conflict, most people can talk about the Western Front mm-hmm. because it happens in France and and Belgium. We the names of it more familiar to us. People then will be able to talk about Gallipoli, but the Italian Front, mm-hmm. um, the fighting in the Balkans, which is extremely savage. The fighting in Turkey and Greece, which goes on until 1919, 1920. And then, of course, the Eastern Front happens over a huge area with lots of names which are different, difficult to pronounce. And all the towns have got Polish and German names. And these huge battles which are going on, which, you know, it's very hard to wrap your head around everything going on at the same time. Um, and then you've got this world war on top of it, mm-hmm. um, which I agree has, has to be assessed and thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, the coming back now to to the the, the present day, um, <clears throat> the kind of the crisis that we we are in at the moment. Some people have suggested. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's quite a, a, a common um, assertion that we're in a kind of a crisis, not even just of British, but even, but actually kind of of English uh, exceptionalism. The idea that 
um, Britain or really England is special and different and not really subject to the ebb and flow of European history. Do you do you feel that that is that's a, a valid critique of um, the way Britain sees itself at the moment, or, or England, or is there more to it than that? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, well, I, I certainly think a lot of this country's self-image uh, to a degree goes back to World War II mm-hmm. uh, and this notion that Britain stood alone and was this bulwark and if it wasn't for Britain, you know, we'd all be in Germany. Um, and I think that doesn't really do service to the great role that Commonwealth troops, you know, played in, in, in keeping Britain alive or international um, shipping and the merchant navies who came from all over the world to keep food for this country and also the, the very brave resistance fighters in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we think about the European resistance, these people had no idea that the war was going to end in 1945. No. For all they knew, they could have been under Nazi occupation for the rest of their lives. And I think what that's what makes what they did really brave. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's an important thing to look up, think about. But at the same time, the achievement of, of, of Britain in, in just managing to hang on, yeah. you know, was huge and helped provide some tactical and strategic missteps on the hand of the German high command as well. I think, um, which, you know, but you have to take advantage of these opportunities. There was a thing that Trotsky said about um, the Tsar, uh, Nicholas II. He said that if history is blowing in your direction, you can't really go far wrong. If the events are kind of going the way that 
suit you. Um, and if it's not, you've you've had it basically. And I, th- I think that's a a kind of a kind way of looking at, uh, particularly at Winston Churchill during the war, that um, by and large, if he if he his his genius, if you will, was about seeing the way the wind was blowing and being able to kind of capitalise on, on the moment. Almost he makes like a series of catastrophic errors, um, places, things that, you know, disasters in Greece and things like that. But we was able to um, see that um, ultimately America probably would enter the war. Uh, if it uh, if if the moment arose, and that hanging on was uh, and, and keeping America um, appraised of the situation in all sorts of different ways, and uh, keeping American public opinion on side was was kind of the uh, the trick, and now no doubt that there's there's you know other things to be said in Churchill's favour, but um, I I think that that's a more for me, I've always thought that's a more realistic way of looking at, at, at Britain and, and the war uh, than the the kind of the um, kind of more flag waving narrative, um, which I think is causing us, uh, you know, all sorts of problems at the moment. Um, do you find that um, the if you take a, like a Titanic figure like Churchill, that his yeah. His his uses and abuses, the uses and abuses of his of, of the memory of of him, can be quite problematic. Yeah, I, I think you you can get to some people so iconic that they just, they just become binary figures, and you either have to say he was great unquestionably, and anyone who says differently is unpatriotic, or you can say he was a complete villain, uh, and anyone who says differently is is you know bigoted or something like that. And, you know, if, if you want to be a good historian, you have to think about the context of the time, the nuance of the time. Mm-hmm. And actually, he was a bit of both. He was a very complex figure mm-hmm. um, who was under an enormous amount of stress and who made a lot of bad decisions throughout his career, not not just in World War II. But he was also enormously resilient. And, and, I, and I think he held together the international alliance, but also he has to hold together an alliance of the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Clement Attlee, which is something which I don't think the leaders of the Conservative and Labour Party today could no. uh, would... hold together um, an alliance under that kind of stress. So I think you have to sort of think about him in the round, I think. And also, I mean, there's a, a point that comes um, perhaps at the Tehran conference, certainly by the Yalta conference, where Churchill, I think it's at Yalta where Churchill says the big three have become the big two and a half. Uh, and he seems to have consumed some hard truths about Britain's role in the world and the durability of the empire. Um, it, it seems actually, at that moment, remarkably out of character from the Churchill we previously know to be uh, that sort of accepting, really, that uh, Britain's time at the top table is is pretty much over. Why do you think that he was capable of, of being that reflective? Well, I think, I think part of it, and I'm playing sort of amateur psychologist here, is that Churchill was not very well for a lot of the war. No. You know, he was under significant health problems. He had pneumonia, um, I think one or two heart attacks during the war. Um, 
and he's a kind of robust guy, so it's amazing he's, he survived it. And actually, I think he, you get a sense of your own mortality, and then I think you then you think about your country. And then when you're running the war and you see the huge scale of what's going on, things like the Lend-Lease operation, mm-hmm. and you know exactly what the United States' industrial output is, and also you have some idea of just how many uh, troops the Soviet Union have. I think he must he must have realised that the United Kingdom, um, you know, for, for all of its worse and, and all of its advantages, in the long run, it, it's going to be a two-power world. Mm-hmm. And you have to do your best to negotiate that serious situation uh, and win the war and then, then try and forge some sort of peace which was advantageous to, to Britain uh, as Churchill understood it. Because we're in this extraordinary situation, aren't we, where um, the, 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 the pillars of Churchill's post-war world were the Commonwealth, the Atlantic uh, bond, um, and, and Europe. You know, he, he, he basically proposed, I don't know quite how far he saw Britain as being a part of this, but he said basically you know, a Commonwealth of Europe should emerge and this is going to be a wholly good thing. Uh, and the sooner we can rehabilitate the Germans, so much the better. Um, Obviously, we you know the the British Empire is long gone. There are these kind of Brexiteer fantasies about Empire two two point which um, mm. I, I think already when you start to say that in public, uh, probably the game's up. Um, yeah. uh, the 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 first empire was more of a game of stealth than that, um, and they and we have this hugely unreliable um, relationship in the White House, which didn't begin with Donald Trump. You know, our Britain's shaky Atlantic relationships have not begun with the the election of Donald Trump. So we we've got this this atrophying one by one of of Churchill's pillars of uh, of Britain's world position, and the kind of the the um, the, the severing of of links with Europe. Um, kind of for those for you know a, a group of Tory politicians that uh, worship at uh, Churchill's statue they have really taken apart the the world that he tried to create now I suppose the question is is uh, whilst that seems kind of absurd and I suspect it probably is is it fairly standard do we think that um, these um, uh, the, these kind of ties, these alliances, these strategic positions that uh, countries take inevitably come to an end at a certain point and we go into, and nations go into a state of, of flux, really, as, as to where they are in the world. Is this a kind of a common pattern? Well, I, I think if you look at history in the, in, the, in the very long view, since, I guess, the early modern period, um, you have a series of great powers emerging in Europe and everything is a response to keeping that great power under control. And so in the 16th century, it's Spain. In the 17th century, it's, it's France. Uh, and then from the 18th century, you try and have an idea of a balance of power being kept, and you have this series of shifting alliances. And that really holds true until, I think, after World War II, if you want to really extend it. Uh, and I think what has been the great achievement of, of the kind of EU extended project uh, which starts in it after the war, is that it stopped this confrontational alliance-making system where one it all takes is one state to go to another side mm-hmm. for the situation to be unbalanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the EU project has only lasted 
historically the blink of an eye, mm-hmm. but certainly it's delivered the, one of the longest periods of continuous peace Western Europe, um, you know, has certainly seen, mm-hmm. uh, as well as delivering a high degree of prosperity. Mm-hmm. How much that would have happened without the EU is open to question, but I certainly think um, that it does stop this very damaging cycle of alliance, counter-alliance, war building up. And now we shift towards <clears throat> a world that is less based on, on multilateralism and more mm-hmm. something that you might have recognised in the 19th century. We have um, a kind of a, 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 a hyper-nationalist uh, uh, America, China, uh, a resurgent uh, India, uh, countries such as um, uh, Erdogan's Turkey and obviously Putin's Russia, um, all jostling more uh, as the great powers of the 19th century um, would have done. Um, and, a, and a kind of an atrophy, not just of the, the EU, but um, you have Trump, for example, uh, rolling, rolling not completely, but sort of rowing back from NATO, um, sustained attacks on the legitimacy of UN institutions. You, you know, this this kind of crumbling of multilateralism seems to be happening. Why do you think that we're going through this this transition? What is what is making this shift um, in 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 the world? Well, I, I think in one respect, uh, it's a response, in a way, to globalization. Re- Response to a feeling of uncertainty and powerlessness in the sh- in the form of a globalizing economy, where national governments aren't necessarily uh, the final arbiter of how a country goes. And I certainly think the two thousand eight nine ten crisis mm-hmm. did shake a lot of people's worldviews and trust uh, in institutions. Yeah. Um, and one of the great Benefits of the EU is at least theoretically the institutions are accountable mm-hmm. to the people of Europe. Um, and I think when people think that the institutions don't care about them and don't listen to them, they can turn to people who say, actually, we're going to just tear this down uh, and look inwards and take care of ourselves, even though uh, I think certainly economically it's just impossible for a country to um, fold in on itself. Yeah. We're too, too linked to each other. I would say. Yeah. Um, I mean, you you may find. I mean, it's impossible to predict the future, and you know that's not really our our job as historians, is it? But you may find that this is a kind of a a, a kink in the road to ever greater levels of globalization, or it's something something more than that. It's some some greater greater rupture. But it would be difficult. I would say it would be um, difficult to argue that kind of a process of globalisation that's been going on roughly since the Tudors is going to ground to a halt now, uh, particularly mm-hmm. as you see the advances of uh, of, of, of technology um, uh, that we see. Um, but the your, the European Union, it's it's interesting to contemplate in this um, uh, sort of. Um, less multilateral world where an institution based on multilateralism sits because so far it hasn't done much to fight back against the kind of the the vice it's in between Putin on one side Trump on the other and perhaps Erdogan on the on on the other um it seems 
hemmed in without having done a kind of a great deal. But who knows? Yeah, well, I think the European Union is a huge bureaucracy and the wheels of the bureaucracy turn very slowly sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that became one of the problems of the old Soviet Union, just mm-hmm. becomes choked up with levels of bureaucracy. And I think that is one of the issues that the European Union will have to face, is how can it be more nimble and think on its feet and react to these other large countries? And, and one of the ways they react is to become even more integrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way to react will become a much looser association. Um, so, so I think really the institution of the EU has to re- reassess how it's going to operate yeah. in, in the 21st century for it to you know, carry on and achieving its mission. Yeah. Great. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for your time. It's been a very, very illuminating chat. Um, I'll be putting this live out um, uh, later on. Uh, but if anybody out there wants to get a copy, it is um, The History of Europe in Bite Sized Chunks by Jacob Field, uh, a snip at nine ninety nine, available from all good bookshops, uh, and certainly the kind of uh, useful go to reference guide that uh, any modern historian should have. Thanks very much, Jacob, and hopefully, would it be possible to have you back on the show again at some point in the future for a Sure, I would, I would love to speak, certainly after whatever is going to happen with the UK and the European Union comes okay. to light, if you need a historical perspective on that, I would, I would, I would love, love to that. come back and see what's going to happen. I'll drop you a line, I'd love that. Thanks so much, Wonderful. all the best. Cheers, bye. Bye-bye.